Ahoy! Jobody Hambone here, and you're listening to Tale of the Manicore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter begins with the companions in Brannon at the Spinner's Wheel Inn and Tavern. Jace is wondering what he'll do when they return to Silmoral. His entire crew was wiped out by Soro the Mad and his men. As for the rest of them, they are wounded and require some downtime before they can do anything. Back in Silmoral, at Whitestone Castle, Carrick, well, it isn't Carrick anymore, is it? Azor Azul, has climbed the cliffs and re-entered the palace. He happens across King Colfrey and his fool Briar Patches, who are wasting time in the throne room and generally ignoring the day's work. Azor Azul casts some kind of spell on the king, and, when it leaves, Culfrey is no longer in possession of a functioning mind. The story then returns to the companions, who, after several days, have just come back to Silmoral to seek their vengeance. By now, Jace has joined Yellowfly's crew as a full member, and, as such, will participate in the plan to deliver payback. The episode ends just as the party approaches the wind of the cliffs and makes ready to put things right and get some justice for their lost friends. Chapter 35, Part 1, Day 111, Evening. Easily finished his business, pulled up his pants, and fumbled at his belt, with fingers already growing numb in the cold. At least it wasn't snowing. He opened the rear door to the inn and slipped back into the cozy warmth of the building. Their newly cleaned chimney was working exceptionally well. (laughs) He chuckled to himself and brought up a hand to stroke his chin. He felt the early stubble of a beard coming in and easily thought whiskers would suit him well. He smiled. Things were truly looking up for him and his mother. They had a chance for a better life now. It didn't really matter where the money had come from. When spring came, they could fix the roof, maybe even sell the place and move out of the city. He had heard good things about Domor. They just had to make it through the winter without the ceiling falling in. Hopefully the worst of the snows were over. He made the sign of Vesaluna over his heart, wary of jinxing his luck with such a thought. Yes, he was in a fine mood tonight. There was good food in his belly, and they still had a half bottle of Zation Sour, yet undrunk. He started whistling a tune he knew called the Willow Song. He had once heard it sung by one of Hamnet Rattlestaff's protégés, and he had never forgotten the melody. He was whistling it still when he walked into the kitchen, but the tune died upon his lips at what he saw there.
I'm sorry, my boy, said his mother in a flat voice. She was sitting in her usual chair at the little kitchen table, but there was a man standing behind her with a gleaming knife held to her throat. Two other men, one large and one slight, stood to either side. He knew two of them. The other was a stranger. The sight made him blanch with fear, and if easily had not just relieved himself, he might have wet himself. He took an involuntary step back. Stay a while, said Yellowfly. Have a seat. Yellowfly nodded to Catsbane, who pulled out the other chair, and indicated with his chin for the young man to sit. Easley's eyes flicked all over the room, quickly looking for any advantage or opportunity. Seeing none, he sank into the chair, with his eyes pleading first to Yellowfly, then to his mother. I'm sorry, Janelle repeated. Confusion, like a morning fog, was driven away by the light of realization. The recent windfall had promised to change their lives, and his mother had refused to say how she'd gotten it. He was not naive. He'd assumed it was ill-gotten, but he hadn't expected this. Summoning more iron than he knew was in him, he suddenly announced, It was me. I told him. Let mom go. Do as you will to me, only let her go free. She had nothing to do with any of it. You're a good son, said Yellowfly with sad eyes. His knife did not move, however. It remained with the tip pressed against the hollow of Janelle's throat. He turned to Jace. Now watch she doesn't do anything stupid. Jace nodded and showed his own blade to the boy. We still have most of the money. It's all yours. Just please, let us live. Paisley, no. Hush now, Janelle. You've talked enough, I think. How much money? One... fifty. Yellowfly rolled his eyes and stared down at the top of Janelle's head. You sold us for one hundred and fifty. It's a lot of money to us, Fly. She whispered back. I'm sorry. No, you're not. Where's it hidden, boy? Let mom go, and I'll tell you, replied Easley, somehow maintaining his boldness. How about you tell me, or I'll cut her throat? No. Take the knife away first, then I'll tell you. Yellowfly bobbed his head to either side, impressed. Slowly, he withdrew the knife and stepped to the side. There. See? Mom's all right. Now, where's the money? As it was earned in exchange for our lives, I think it rightly belongs to us, hmm? It's... It's in a stocking under a loose flagstone in the storage room down the hole. Uh, You wouldn't be wasting our time now. Easily dumbly shook his head to say he was not. Jace. The newest member of their gang left the kitchen and disappeared down the hall while the others waited in tense silence. After a minute, he called back. It's here. Yellowfly nodded. Then he looked down at Janelle. She was still seated and touching her throat with a finger. With sudden hurt and anger, he blurted, How could you betray me like that, Janelle? Let him go, Fly. For old time's sake, let him go. I was a friend to you once when you needed one, remember? I know I'm in no position to ask you of anything, but I'm asking. Please, let him go. Easley's expression changed. He must have realized something. Perhaps it was because his mother made no move to rise. Mom, you can't just let them. Wait, what about the red sheath? Give her the red sheath and we'll be gone forever. You'll never lay eyes on us again. Easley clearly believed he had found an angle to work because he redoubled his efforts, speaking quickly now. That's our way. That's our code. Lord Rabbit wouldn't want it this way. All right then, Janelle. For bygone times then. I'm not sure you deserve it, uh, but perhaps he does. Time for you to go, boy. By which I mean you need to leave right now and not come back. Easley did not move. I said, go on. It's all right, Easley. Janelle tried to smile at her son, but it was an ugly, crooked smile, 
made worse by the red paint she wore on her lips. Surprising everyone, perhaps even himself, Easley suddenly exploded out of his chair and lunged across the small table. Now that his mother was no longer between him and Yellowfly, he had a clear shot, and he took it. His fist connected with Yellowfly's chin and sent the other man reeling back. The half-full bottle of Zation Sour was knocked over in the attack and fell to the wooden floor with a dull clunk. Jace and Catsbane were so completely caught off guard that Easley managed to attack a second time. He threw himself into Jace's arms, making it impossible for the swordsman to draw. Then he headbutted him in the cheek. The blow sent him staggering backwards into the wall. Easley quickly stooped down and grabbed the fallen wine bottle by the neck so that he held it like a club. He dashed it against the fireplace and now faced Catsbane with a broken bottle, the jagged edges thrusting at the air in front of him with menace. But before he could do anything further, Janelle uttered a yelp of pain and surprise. Easley watched astonished as his mother's hair stood straight up as though tied to an invisible string. Then she rose in her seat until she half stood, but this action was also involuntary. She was being hoisted up by some unseen force. Just a few seconds into this bizarre spectacle, a shadow began to materialize right behind Janelle. The shadow darkened and then began to take color. Within a few moments, Easley saw that it was Shawnee standing behind his mother and holding her up by the hair. Without a word, and using her free hand, she plunged a dagger into his mother, stabbing down so that the blade entered right above the collarbone. As the light left Janelle's eyes and strength drained from her body, Shawnee let her slump back into her chair, and her head fell face down on the tabletop. There, said Shawnee, is your dagger in a red sheath. You ever wanted to play Shadowrun? You know, the cyberpunk tabletop game where man meets magic and machine? It's too hard though, right? Too crunchy? Too clunky? It's a lot of math. Wrong! Pink Fohawk is a Shadowrun 2nd Edition actual play podcast, played by the rules, but fast and loose, with all the 80s cyberpunk edginess you know and love, where the hair is big and the explosions are bigger. Follow the story of two rad Shadowrunners, making a name for themselves in the mean streets of 2053 Seattle. Tina Bone Meal, nine and a half feet of pure troll muscle, surveillance expert, and aspiring actress. John Anderson, former company man, with a resume shrouded in mystery and a black belt Nikito. Check out Pink Fohawk Podcast, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Chapter 35, Part 2, Day 112, Morning. Party status. Yellowfly, 22 of 26 hit points. Shawnee, 13 of 19. Catsbane, 12 of 12. Jace, 25 of 26. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized magic missile, read languages, mirror image, and invisibility. Ever merciful and generous Vesseluna, mother of us all, you who are the author and sustainer of all life, you who set our gracious sovereign upon the throne and bestowed upon him such goodness and wisdom, 
Grant that your servant, King Colfrey, the first of his name, whom you have given a long and happy reign as our beloved monarch of these lands, may be restored to health in this his time of need, and rewarded with that vibrant force of life promised to all who cleave to your bosom and the power of your spirit. Let perpetual light shine upon him, as he is and has been your faithful servant, and may his return to vigor be as speedy as it is righteous. So let it be. So let it be. The bells of the cathedral rang every hour that day as news of the king's ill health spread through the city by orating priests under their vaulted ceilings and by bellowing town criers in the city's streets. The queen, they announced, was overcome with grief and concern for her beloved husband and had refused to look upon the sun for the last three days. Only the darkness of her chambers could soothe the worry in her heart, they said. The people of Silmoral felt considerable less concern for their monarch, at least when the city guard was out of earshot. Coinciding with the king's poor health and the closing of all city gates had been a remarkable increase in the presence of the city watch. Where there had once been two stationed at any given post, now there were five. Streets and alleys that had never known the booted tromp of uniformed patrols no longer enjoyed such anonymity. A curfew was announced and vigorously enforced, with more than a few late-night carousers being made into examples. By the third day, Silmoral had become eerily still and quiet at night, with only the moon and the falling snow abroad to keep the city watch company. Yellowfly, Shawnee, and Catsbane had not returned to their apartment the previous evening, after leaving the wind of the cliffs and his bereaved and inconsolable new owner behind. Instead, they had gone to Jace's home, reasoning that it was the safest choice available to them. The place was a combination ironmonger's shop and smithy, with apartments on the second floor. The smithy itself was small and only suited for small jobs. Horseshoes, nails, hooks, chain link, and occasionally, arrowheads, spearheads, and knives were the sorts of things made and sold there. Years ago, Colfrey's iron tax had ruined the business, but since then the shop had been somewhat revived by Jace's younger brother, Hecton. His elderly parents spent most of their out-of-bed time in the smithy, where it was warm, but they were too old and weak to work the bellows or the hammer anymore. Even the run of the shop was too taxing for them, and so Hecton took care of everything. The arrangement had once caused a certain amount of animosity between the two brothers, but those arguments stopped when Jace's new line of work started bringing in twice as much as the business. When Jace arrived with his new companions, the two brothers had embraced, and the elder had put twenty gold coins on the table in a neat stack. Good to see you, brother. <laughs> That's a nice black eye you got. Run into some guards. Jace waved it off. <laughs> It's nothing. Then he turned to point out his guests. Hecton, these are my friends. Catsbane, Yellowfly, and Shawnee. They'll be staying here for a few nights, probably. Hecton came over to greet them and shake their hands. He knew of them by reputation, but pretended ignorance. There's my mom and dad, yonder by the fire. Jace's parents looked up weakly, but did not rise. Enough a blanket, mum? Without waiting for an answer, the newest member of Yellowfly's gang carried a second blanket to place over his mother's lap. He kissed both of his parents on the forehead before beckoning his companions over to the stairs. Come on up. I'll show you where you can sleep. Hecton, I'm rooming with you tonight. Fine, fine. You can tell me where you got that chain shirt and bow, in addition to where you got that skeg mark. Like I said, we'll talk later.
Dramatis Personae, Jace. Jace is 22 years old. He has brown hair that he wears short, a craggy forehead, and dark blue eyes. Tall, slim, and broad-shouldered even as a youth, he has always had a fighter's physique. He knows how to use a longsword and a short bow with equal effectiveness. Jace values friendship above all and is fiercely loyal to those who are close to him. He grew up in his father's small ironmonger shop in the high town market area of Silmoral. His father did a modest trade there until King Culfrey's iron tax consumed their slim profit margin. Unable to raise prices without losing its customers, the shop went out of business and Jace's parents went into early involuntary retirement. Bitterness and worry came along with sudden poverty and ate away at their health. Soon, both mother and father had grown into old age prematurely and become dependent on their children. Akin to his loyalty, Jace's other predominant personality trait is his sense of duty and responsibility. He had trained in the smithy as an apprentice throughout his childhood, along with his younger brother, Hecton. While Hecton took to it like a duck to water, Jace did not enjoy the work, nor was he very good at it. By his adolescence, he had decided to apply for a position with the City Watch, despite his misgivings towards the monarch. However, he never did, all because of a chance meeting with a certain man. This man was Nudge Pickens. Nudge was a middle-ranking member of the Church Thieves Guild, of a status on par with the Lord Rabbit in the Warren. The young man, whose family business had been ruined by the King, was an easy convert, and Jace quickly started earning more money working jobs for Nudge than his parents had ever gotten through their shop. For a few years, he was the sole provider for his whole family. A few years after shutting the doors to their business, Hecton made the decision to try and restore the smithy and resume the making and selling of ironwares. Hecton had hoped his brother would join him in the effort, but Jace was not interested, and after a spate of arguments lasting a few months, he finally accepted that his sibling would not help him directly with the work. Instead, while Jace continued to support the family, he also began to put some of his earnings into the business. Together, they made a reasonable success, and the ironmonger shop came back to life. It never fully regained its former industry, but it earned enough to keep the little family going without illegitimate subsidies. To this day, Jace harbors a strong resentment against King Culfrey. Additionally, he carries a kind of guilt over his parents' decline. He feels he should have been able to do more for them, though he does not know what that might have been. As the past can never be regained, he now dedicates his life to providing for his family and bringing them comfort by whatever means necessary. Between the Lions Sometimes I get so deeply into the role-playing aspect of this story that, approaching the end of an episode, I realize I have not rolled a single die. Some folks strive for this type of game, and while I completely understand why, Totem is a solo game, so I need to be careful. If I allow diceless sessions to happen, I might wake up one day and realize I am writing an audiobook. Totem is part dark fantasy novel, but only part. If I'm going to end every episode by declaring chaos rolls, well, I had better do some rolling. So, let's throw some math rocks. I wonder though, what could be randomly determined right now? Maybe if I quickly take stock of the situation in Camertine, then something will present itself. The chess pieces are arrayed as follows. Azor Azul and his demons are in the castle, and, seeing through the thin facade of the king's supposed illness, we can guess the former leadership is over. The PCs are laying low with Jace's family. They still need to rest and heal after the encounter with the Ragodesses several days before. Vengeance has been won, but they are still in danger because Suro the Mad is at large, and he knows they could still be alive. Speaking of the Winks, 
Their leader, Laris, remember him from episode zero, is one of Azorazul's demons. He's no longer running things, so there's a power void in the Thieves' Guild that he's been building this past year and a half. I would say that Suro is in a position to capitalize on that situation, and there will be others, too. This is one of the reasons Silmoral has been experiencing a recent uptick of violence. The Winks are fighting among themselves. Conversely, the Church of the Sacred Flame must be enjoying a return to normalcy, with Sister Savan having left as well. Like Laris, she just got up and walked away to join her master. There's one other player, well, actually players, I should mention, and they are Night Mother and Romola. The raven we keep seeing is Night Mother's spy, one of her polymorphed children, in fact. It keeps Night Mother, who's not a demon herself but merely a servant to them, informed. If the raven is her spy, Romola is her weapon. For now, Romola has not been sent to Silmoral. There's a good reason for this, and that will become clear in time. So where does this leave us in terms of rolling dice? Now, honestly, I'm not sure, but I do have one idea. I've long been a fan of Tana Pigeon's mythic system, and I've often said that I would use it regularly on the show if only I had known about it before I launched and settled on a format. It's long overdue that I roll a random event using her ingenious action and subject tables. For those of you who don't know it, it works like this. I roll a pair of D100s to generate a verb and a noun, respectively, from a pair of tables. One action, one subject. Then, I let my mind figure out what it all means. Mythic is actually more complex than this. For example, with Mythic, I might roll to see which faction is under consideration. However, one of the beauties of Tana's system is that it is modular. You can use bits of it independently. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Actually, this is exciting. Rolling two D100s. The action roll. 34. The verb is lie. Subject roll. 90. The noun is danger. Lie, danger. Lie about danger? Hmm. Well, the authorities are obviously lying about the king and the danger he's in. Nah, I need something different. Ah, okay. I know what it is. Chapter 35, Part 2, Day 112, Late Night. Yellowfly awoke in the middle of the night, shivering and cold all over. He could feel right away that the other side of the bed, where Shawnee had been sleeping, was empty. He patted the mattress to be sure, and then sat up, trying to see in the near total darkness of the room. He caught a line of silver to one side, and realized that the window shutter was open a crack. That accounted for the cold air in the room. As his eyes adjusted, he saw Shawnee's form seated on a chair and looking at the window at the nighttime cityscape. Shawnee. Perhaps she was half dozing or deep in contemplation because his voice startled her. Oh, sorry. Did I wake you, Fly? No. Uh, well, yes, I suppose so, but that's all right. He swung his legs out of bed and got up before carrying a seat over to sit by her side. His eyes had adjusted a little now and he could make out the features of her face. Jay said he'll go speak with his man tomorrow. This nudge can get word to Lord Rabbit for us. Shawnee didn't respond and Yellowfly realized he had read the situation wrong. She didn't want to talk about business. He tried again. You all right? The young woman held Tam's key in her palm. Do you believe in the gods? Yeah, of course I do. I'd be a fool not to. The evidence is everywhere. I also believe, however, that they only take an interest in a very select few people. People like Tam. For most of us, they don't seem to care very much. Most folks' prayers go unanswered, after all. Shawnee nodded and continued to stare at the window. 
Something tells me you're not up because you're having a religious crisis. Something else bothering you. She shrugged and shook her head, thinking about Cole. Her jaw twitched and she nodded. I don't think he'd much care for what we did at the Windy, even after what happened at the Holloway. Shawnee sniffed softly and nodded again. There was nothing else Yellowfly could think of to say, so he put a hand on her back and gently stroked her skin. Shawnee put the key back around her neck and together they looked out the crack in the window to watch the snow falling over the silent city. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help out, there are a bunch of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show. I'd like to take a moment to read one of your kind reviews right now. This one was posted on Apple Podcasts by Dulac3. Dulac3 writes, This is an excellent combination of old-school D&D solo play, BX rules, combined with well-done storytelling and voice acting. It's not only compelling and entertaining, I've been binge-listening from the beginning, but has also given me a lot of great ideas for how to improve my own DMing. Highly recommended. Wow, thanks very much, Dulac3, for that extremely generous review. It feels like a double compliment. I'm so happy that you're getting something out of the show, and I really appreciate that you took the time to post your thoughts. I'd also like to thank my excellent cast. The Priest of Vesaluna is played by Jake House from the growing YouTube channel House DM. Jake makes videos about D&D, crafting terrain, and other tabletop RPGs. You can subscribe and follow him there and on Instagram at jakehousedm. Hecton, brother to Jace, is given voice by Coop the GM of the show Echoes of Eshetan. Echoes of Eshetan is a podcast that isn't afraid to kill its darlings. Find out whether characters will survive in these post-apocalyptic stories every Friday on Spotify or a podcaster near you. Over at the Wind of the Cliffs, there's Easley, played by Nico Rodriguez, creator of the audio drama His Fet Archives, and DM of A Fool's Quest, and the very talented Tisha Zhang from His Fet Archives, who plays Janelle. Thanks very much to you all, Jake, Coop, Nico, and Tisha. If listeners want to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Are you interested in Dungeons and Dragons, terrain building, miniature painting, and other fantasy items? Do you live in the Calgary area? If so, check out ArtCon. This is our first RPG fantasy gathering, and we're planning to have a great time. Guest speakers, vendors, one-shot games, a mini painting competition, and the live recording of the 13-Sided Die podcast, and so much more. The event will be held on Saturday, June 17th, from lunchtime till 6 o'clock. Go to www.ardcon.com, that's A-A-R-D-C-O-N.com, for more information. Will you be there?